0: Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash... I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51, thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge.
1: Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here... As has been the case with the last few weeks, once again, we've got two brilliant authors on today's episode. But if you would like to hear the full versions of both of these interviews, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash bookshambles and subscribe, become a Patreon supporter, and you'll be able to hear full and extended chats with both of these brilliant authors. First up, we've got someone who has topped the Sunday Times bestsellers list, multiple times, Claire McIntosh. And after that we talk to Cadella Forbes, who is not only the professor of Caribbean literature at Howard University, but is also a fantastic author. We talk to her about her new book and her love of fairy tales. Don't forget to check out cosmicshambles.com for everything else we've got going on during this extended Period of no live shows, lots of live streams, Science Shambles uh, podcast is live with a Q&A every Sunday at 3pm. Show and tell shows as part of, uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber to either Book Shambles or Cosmic Shambles, you get an exclusive show and tell show every week. This week, the guest with Robin and Josie was Nish Kumar. Previously, we've had on Chris Addison and Nitin Sawney and Ross Noble, lots of others as well. And also, since uh, people still often ask, if you go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and find the episode that you've been listening to, you'll find a reading list for all the books that were talked about during that relevant episode. But now on to this week's episode with Claire McIntosh and first of all, Cordella Forbes.
0: Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles and uh, well today uh, we'll introduce you to, uh, we've got two guests today and uh, you'll be introduced to them shortly but I was quickly going to say some things uh, um, about Josie, I've, as you know I've started a a bookshop, an online bookshop because I don't like having too little to do. I love it. it, And it has exactly replaced touring because I don't have enough time to wrap them all (laughs) in brown paper because I wrap in brown paper because i want to be environmentally sound and all that kind of thing and i put in little (laughs) postcards and do all that stuff and it's sucked up all the time when i'm actually meant to be writing a book um but my thing and i don't know if you have this that bit when you're trying to get rid of books and as you know last year i gave a thousand books away to leicester prison and it made no difference to the look of anywhere yeah but the thing to do is never open once you've gone i'll get rid of that don't open it yeah yeah yeah. gender no go on The second you do, you will convince yourself,
2: particularly you, will convince yourself that there's no way you can give it up.
0: Now, with this one, Gender Advertisements by Irving Goffman, who wrote The uh, Preservation of Self in Everyday Life and and Stigma. And I thought, I can get rid of this. It's quite an experience. Expensive book, actually. It's quite hard to get hold of. Maybe I'll sell that. And then I just looked and it has these amazing guides as to every small amount. I don't know how well you can see that every small gesture which is used in advertising oh. to show uh, subordination. Wow. and the way that it's done. Uh, the twist of a knee. Uh, in advertisements women are shown mentally drifting from physical scene around them while in close physical touch with a male as though his aliveness to the surround and his readiness to cope with anything might present itself were enough for both of them. So it's just filled with all of these ideas of how women are presented. And, and this is I 1970.
2: Is I want to read photographs better and I want to read meaning better. And to sort of have handy primers for that.
0: Oh, with that's this, problem. this is, I mean, if I was selling this. What you did have you it. For? But I'm What? How what much? You, what's the going rate? Well, it, goes, it goes for about 30 quid, so I'd sell it for about Wait. 18 pounds. No! But it's not going. Because it's got everything, it's got how, uh, you know, different toying with different objects in adverts, what that means again about subordination. It's for, so that's one of the books that hasn't gone this week and is not going and I'm keeping it and I like it.
2: I think that's fair enough. I have been looking frantically for my bike that was stolen online in the vain hope that someone's trying to sell it. And what I found is that my particular bike, which I bought new, it's the first time I bought a new bike in my whole life and I loved it, which, you know, I should have taken better care of it, even though I did have it locked. But this is another question for another time. Um, That bike is is oddly so popular, it's completely sold out. uh, New, if I were to buy it new. And the only one for sale secondhand is more expensive than were it new, were it to be new.
0: It's probably owned by someone very famous. It's probably like Ralph Fiennes' uh, bicycle or something like that. That's how someone. the
2: rich stay rich. That's yeah. how the rich stay rich. Um, oh, we should introduce our guest. We are going to introduce our
0: guest who is uh, – it's always nice when we do a show which is in at least two time zones, and we are today. Uh, and uh, I've, I've just read her, her most recent novel, and it is uh, – It's fantastic and it's fascinating and it is uh, filled with history and uh, a beautiful imagination and it will carry you away because it is so, uh, there's so much enigmatic areas in it as well. And it is Cadella Forbes who has, her latest book is A Tall History of Sugar. Hello. 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 How
2: are
0: you? Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Oh, thanks so much for coming on. No, we're really pleased. And I want to start first of all with, you know, people... And and you yourself have said this in interviews, you know, which is mm-hmm. this novel, there is a sense of the fairy tale about yeah. it that you um, and, and that you have had a love of the fairy tale. And also the fact that what often gets forgotten with the fairy tale is we see the Disney version where the yes. Grimm's are given a happy ending. You know, they suddenly <laughs> Little Mermaid. Everything's nice at the end. That's not. And so when did you first when did you get a sense of being captivated by the kind of the reality of the fairy tale?
3: Oh, I think that's something that has been coming on for a long time, like a disease, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was steeped in fairy tales when I was growing up. You know, I, I read probably everything that Grimm had produced, and then I remember reading a whole set of colored ones like um, by Andrew Lang, by Andrew Lang. Yellow fairy book, green fairy book, blue fairy book, and because I loved colors as a child, that really fascinated me. But I, I think that... Um, the fairy tales had a kind of connection in my head with the kinds of stories that were told in the yards in rural Jamaica where I grew up. You know on moonlight nights we would get together and play a game called moonshine baby and people would tell stories and they were always what we call doppy stories, stories about ghosts you know and um. When they'd finished, you know, it was really horribly, they might finish a, sto- a, a story. And because in the countryside in those days, everything was very open. Your mother might say, okay, run over to the shop and buy so-and-so. <laughs> you know, oh, please, I'm not going, I'm not going. please, please, please. So I think that kind of sense of the, what some people might call the otherworldly, always inhabiting our space, because you really believe the duppies were there, you know, You'd see them and so on. It, so, there was some sort of underground way, which I didn't realize then. In which the reality of the fairy tale just connected with that sense of those kinds of stories and our sense that we were surrounded by these duppies in a very real way. But I think um, it was actually, it sort of hit me in the head, you know, really and truly when I started teaching Shakespeare at the University of the West Indies and I taught A Midsummer Night's Dream which uh, sections of which we had studied as children, I think I would have been about uh, 11 years old in first form, what they call seventh grade now. And, you know, it was very fairy tale, you know, you know, nice, fancy, you know, we dress up in the fairies and Oberon and Titania and all of that. And then I said, oh, my God, well, this is really a horrible, horrible, horrible play, you know, It's about voyeurism, it's about bestiality, it's about all those things. And then I started looking at the midsummer, um, you know, cycles and, you know, what they meant in druidic times and so on. And it just started to connect, you know, it just started to connect from there. And and there's a long history of that after that, you know, part of it also connects with um, the fact that I've always hated writing, not reading, but writing realist fiction. My whole sensibility seems to have been to push towards writing in a truthful way, in a way that you couldn't to put it sort of crudely, put in the test you and say, okay, this is, you know, this is, you know, you can test this out by, you know, in so by scientific means, you can test this out. Not that any artist ever does that, but but the idea that it has to be contoured, you know, in a way that people see reality on the surface with their you know, straight eyes. And so, in a way, this book is, is my furthest push ag- ag- against that kind of, of way of writing, or, or not so much against as towards writing in the way that suits my sensibility, my sense of what reality really looks like. And um, it, it's that thing that there's no separation, as it were, between, you know, different levels of reality you know, different worlds. It's not sort of other worlds, it's just the everyday
0: way, basically. Do you, and- do you find that frustrating then? That there's, because it does feel like, you know, I've d- we've spoken to other writers and friends of ours who who get annoyed where, you know, they say something has to be called comedy or drama or thriller yes. or whatever, when in fact, the, the you know, our lives are one moment comic, then dramatic, then they're thrilling, yes. then they're melancholy, then there's sex and then there's violence and all of those things. And, and- also-
2: particularly fairy stories, you know, like you were saying about the neatening of it, but the, the way you're talking about ghost stories, it's horror. It's horror. Yes,
3: it is horror. It's actually horror. It's actually horror. I mean, you you know, it fascinates me. I'm sort of going around and coming back to whether or not it's frustrating, but as you, you know, inserted that, Robin, um, you know, what struck me was that when Grimm, the Grimm brothers went to, wrote those stories, they didn't write those stories. They went around getting them from the folk. Yes. Yeah. These were the people, these were stories that had not been written down. They were the oral stories and it must have been their perception of history. You know, this is how they put, they, they thought about, you know, what happened in the great houses or around them, their way of making sense. And there was a lot of danger, you know, all these, you know, creatures lurking in the underbrush, for example, you know, you never know whether they're going to treat you well or whether you know the right code to say, you know, should I say, okay, I will Cut the branches of this dry tree when I have a mission. Well, why can't I just keep going? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Why right? do I just stop and fix this tree so it will help me later on? Mm-hmm. So they're always, you know, looking at things like that. But yeah, it, I don't know that it's frustrating so much as curious to me when people say, oh, let's fit it into this genre or another. It certainly is interesting. I remember somebody writing a blurb about the the book, A Taught History of Sugar, and saying it was marvelous realism or magical realism. And I said, nah, I don't think I can go with that one at all. And this is a struggle we've always had in you know, the kind of, what you call these, you know, things, you know. If you say magic realism, it sounds like, oh, it's just magic and it's fantasy. If you say marvelous realism, it suggests that there's a kind of reality that is not always marvelous one way you or another. Know, and we live the marvel of reality every day, you know, and so in some of it in horrific ways. Yeah. So I, I finally said, oh. I think I will go with. If you have to have a label, and I'm and I'm, you know, struggling with this, you know, <laughs> go with mythic reality, the more mythic reality, because there's a way in which the 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 myth has a larger sense of the the way things are interpolated. You know, the worlds cross each other. Uh, we we interpret our lives through through myth in that way. Uh, having said that, I felt quite horrified with myself. So why did you do that? No, you've locked this thing into some term you know but but i don't know you know i guess i guess in know what you're saying is that it is frustrating yes but i hadn't realized it was frustrating until you asked me the question
0: do you know what i'm so glad you said that because someone earlier today asked me about your book and i was kind of explaining it and the fairy tale elements things like that and i said do you know what it would probably get called by some people magical realism but you know when you say that to an author they always say no that's not so i'm really glad that i correctly i worked out i reckon if i call this magical realism it'll be more frustrating than i imagined
2: <laughs> but i think using the term myth is so uh is very important because it it's so um far reaching as a term you yes. know uh in terms of how far back it goes in human history and in terms of the genres that it spans it means that you know it is it, all encompassing in a in a good way i think
3: Yes, but also I think because when you think about it in a more practical level, we do live our life we interpret our lives through the creation of myths. And and they might not look like myth, but, but ways of understanding our universe, you know, the our human universe. You know, I think about I think about American myth a lot because I live in um in, in the United States, I think about Monroe Doctrine, you know, I think about Manifest Destiny. These are mythic, you know, these yeah. are myths that are created to shape the idea of, of America. So so yeah, I thought, yeah, yeah. and and it, Because some so myths kind of also gives you the kind of political edge that, you know, you hope you're getting through even when you're writing a long story. <laughs>
0: But that was, I mean, what I find, you know, just just as we were starting to do, do the, the the podcast today, and we were talking a little bit about what's going on politically in 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 the US at the moment, and these things, which, as you said, it's not as if they're it's not really new, but it's yeah. now it's it's an overt vision of what has lain there all the time, and and that as well seems to me to be. Uh, some, again in that beginning of the book as we look again at the contrast between mm-hmm. the way that a reality is delivered to us the way that we experience everything mm-hmm. that we eat and our entertainment and the jewelry and all of those things mm-hmm. and then again what lies beneath and yes. you know it, yes. in some ways was that part of when you're writing a book looking at that 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 side as we pull back the curtain yes. was that was that an important part uh of of writing the story
3: Yes, it was. And it's interesting you make the link between, you know, what's happening in America now and then, Um, because there's a direct link to my experiences in the U.S. um, and some of the reasons I started that book. And I I talk about that already um, in in other interviews that um, I've always been just stunned by the issue of race. And that sounds crazy. I'm a black person, <laughs> you know. But, and everywhere you go, the, the, the you know, race confronts you. One of the first things you, you learn when you travel as a black person, no matter where you go in the world, um, outside of your space, is that as soon as you arrive, you become aware that you are black. You know, I've been stopped as an academic visitor with a visa. I've been stopped in England. Um, I've been stopped in, in, in Frankfurt all over, in you know, all over the world because of the color of my skin. In Australia, they immediately know people, you know, you're black and they, they make a thing. So you I'm confront you read about it at school, you know, you learn your own history and so on. So you're constantly aware, but you're aware in different ways. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really interested me when I first came to the States in 03 was, and and straight race, every single thing is filtered through the prism of race. You can't, you know, research they say, shows that the first thing you meant notice when you see somebody is their race. I somehow don't think that research would be the same everywhere, you know, the same result. So uh, one of the things I said to myself, that's how Moshe came about, was, um, well, suppose there was somebody born whose race you couldn't tell, what the heck would you do then? And then I the interesting thing that I found out that even in Jamaica, I, I had to confront that in Jamaica too, you know, so, so he begins in Jamaica. He never actually arrives in the U.S., but it was the U.S. that gave me that that, that thought. And I, I think about how the, 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 you use, you know, the curtain is pulled back, John, is, is so interesting for what's happening in the States now. I hear a lot of people say, and by the way, I'm an American citizen. Um, you say, oh, you know, what is happening now is not who we are, that's not America, but it is. Mm. It's as much America as the ideal image of America, America's ideal of what it would like to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's a very naked look at that underbelly that, you know, the, that the moment has come for the, for everybody to see it. Social media has played a large part, not just the current president. Well, the fact that people voted for him did a large but began to open people's eyes and say, look, this reality is still here with us. But I think just so the, the sheer presence of a cell phone camera has made a lot of people used to say, oh, black people are just pretending or, you know, they're exaggerating, especially when they themselves get knocked on by the police. While protesting, so yes, it's it's that, and it does feel like we're in a fairy tale to a lot of people. This is what you call, if you're going to use the terms, you know that I'm having trouble with. Marvelous reality hits the, you know, hits you in the face, you know, you know, it hits you in the face, and and, you know, people are people are calling me and apologizing and saying, oh, we didn't know, we didn't know, you know, and um,
2: I sometimes think a lot of it is willful ignorance, but. um, well, like you say, I think it's levels of awareness, isn't it? It's understanding something, but if it's not um, yeah. your day-to-day life, you can understand it, but then yes. you can put it down and then live some more, and then it—you yes. know—it's—it's um, it's the difference between living it and being kind of dimly, dimly yes
3: dimly aware of it in the same way that you know i didn't really live it until i got here kind of thing but it was always there and around me you're so right but his levels of awareness and we go into levels of awareness
2: mm.
3: you know and i think the important thing is our willingness to 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 aware to be aware you know when we mm. when the thing faces us and that is that is and um, the
2: willingness to like keep that and keep, to keep that
3: let it go, to, to hold on to your integrity in in, in, in in recognizing that this is a new level of awareness that I, I now become responsible for, and, and that has to do with all. In fact, Moshe is, interesting, you know, in the book, is one of the things he says at the end that I thought about carefully was when he said to Ariane that he realized that everything that he was asking people to give him, that he wanted people to give him recognition, acceptance, faith, love, he had to give too. That you know, it was as incumbent on him as on anybody else. And that made him equal, you know, kind of thing, you know. So, so yeah, it's important that um, all of us are in this one way or another. Yeah. And all of it's, us are called to book one way or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Is that part of going back to the fairy tales and we were talking about the rewriting of them? And I suppose you know one of the most American things you can think of is Disneyland and Disney World yes. and Walt Disney. It's all encompassing. Yes. And as we mentioned before, you know, there's a there's a lot of people who kind of kick against that idea that the the princess culture, you know, all of these different films. Yes. And as we mentioned already, in a lot of those films where everything ends happily with the, yes. the glass slipper and the golden carriage and whatever else, yes, they don't end happily in the the original versions. In the in original the version. versions, yes. And, how much again in that way that for 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 many of us we we may well blind you know deliberately perhaps or or subconsciously we might be blind to a lot of what's going on our culture when you are surrounded in that kind of myth Mm -hmm. do you think that plays its part as well
3: yes i i think it does absolutely but one of the things that has fascinated me I, i i now have young children i adopted my my young grandniece and nephew. And children have a way of bringing you back to reality. And um, what you said is so true that you, as you're still around, you actually grow into that kind of fantasy, you know. You know, young children are very naked and their minds are very naked. They actually have to be taught, you know, to, um, to, 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 to to drown in that kind of fantasy world, Uh, my six-year-old keeps saying to me, you know, he loves, it's very funny, and and that, that, you know, he loves Jack and the Beanstalk, but he's always criticizing. He says, but he's a thief. His his mother agreed with him. She took the stolen goods. and, and, And she killed the giant, so he's always upset. (laughs) <laughs> you know? <laughs> that proper boy. <laughs> I tell her, that boy is such amazing. And I'm like, well, you know, and, you know, and I, you know, so this is the thing, my, 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 I brought up some other children and my sister's children who used to, you know, rewrite the history books, you know, write, you know, poems from the perspective of those who were discovered. Children just have this natural, I don't know, nearness to a kingdom, <laughs> you know, that we have lost. And they really are trained into fantasy, I find i don't I think that they
2: they're much more aware, so maybe maybe you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I ask you about things that you've loved to read recently what what have you been reading and enjoying? okay, lots of things <laughs> I tend to read I'm just looking at
3: oh you you know you know i, I do you I, laughing when you were talking about your books and you know the the, the lot of books are piled up in every room that's that's my problem too and sometimes i find that i end up with four copies of something because <laughs> i <bought> it, <laughs>
2: tend
3: to read it forgot that i had it bought it again. <laughs> the other day some of my students came and they said they, ple- they they insisted that they're going to fix my library and they said the only pay we want is if you yes i can't pay you you're not supposed to do it because it's not it's not professional i said don't don't worry about it if you give us all the extra copies you have, and they went ah. But right now, and I read a lot of things simultaneously. So I just finished reading The Dutch House, um, which is absolutely fabulous. And then I, I, I'm i reading Marlon James's A Brief History of Seven Killings, which I have um, had on my shelf for ages. And it is quite a powerhouse. So I I take it in stages and in between I read other things. Um, I finished reading um, Edward Danticat's last book. Um, And Tell You the Truth, something just clicked in my head and I can't remember. (laughs) It's a collection of short stories and I read it online and I never always forget. Yeah. So those are some of the things I'm reading right now. Um, In between, I reread a lot of Borges. I I love reading um, Borges' work.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's fascinating because he's a, I do quite a lot of shows with uh, physicists as well. Yes. And, Physicists love the way that his imagination yes, goes as well. There's quite a few that just it's again that 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 looking at uh map territory, uh possibilities and probabilities, and all of those things, yes. he seems to really feed that imagination. Yes, yes,
3: absolutely. And it's interesting you see that because my my son-in-law is an astrophysicist. And we have these, whenever he visits, we have these long discussions about Borges and his his wife, my nieces. Um I'm just leaving you two to
0: burn.
3: <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> talk about boys. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that, that is wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it's a, it's a it's a great novel. I really, uh, it's interesting, by the way, you've proved a point there when you said you've been reading it online and you couldn't remember. I did just read some research recently which talked about Uh the difference that there appears to be at very early days on when you read something in in, in a book, in the book form, and when you read it online, it seems there is a difference in retention.
3: Yes. And that's quite frightening to me, actually. You know, I mean, just now when I forgot the name of the book, I, you, you have no idea how, how horrified I was. Oh my God,
0: is it Senior Moment?
3: Is it Alzheimer's? Or am I, what's What's wrong? How could I forget a book like that? Is it an amazing book, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. But when I, I I still smell books. I don't know about you. I still have to hold them and smell them. And if they don't have smells the way a lot of modern books do, I'm disappointed still. so, so, so And the
2: no, feel no. of the pages, <laughs> different places, yeah. different yeah. places, feeling so different. Yeah. Yes, and I must say I I love the um the
3: cover of the UK version of the book. Um, I I love both. You know, um, I really love the design of both of them. But the feel of that cover,
0: oh my gosh,
2: we I got the. It's very nice. (laughs)
0: There's (laughs) a a great
2: American books. The first time I bought American books, they're so bendy. I don't know what it (laughs) is about the covers, but and the 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 um the pages themselves are kind of almost more in texture, like um, like a fabric. Yeah. Sorry, this is so <laughs> niche. But it blew my mind because I was like, oh, they're different.
0: That's where I always end up buying. We're talking about buying too many copies of the same book. Yeah. where I go, oh, I haven't got oh, that book by that person. Yes. And I go, oh, it was given a different title yeah. and a different cover. And I've done that with loads of my yeah. favourite. And then, of course, once you own it, well, you don't want to give it away because even though it's only it. a slightly different Kurt Vonnegut cover, exactly. it is still and different.
3: Actually, yeah, it was very hard to part with those. But I say, look, you know, I don't have space to put them anyway. Yeah, but that unpatched book, um, The Dutch House, is really something else
2: as well. I, I really love it. I was looking at... Um, a house for sale in Scotland, which is three hours away from Glasgow. It's so remote, but it used to be owned by a religious community. And in it, there is a library the size of like a college library. And I was like, why? Why can't I live there? And then, I, (laughs) you know, (laughs) also, if you had a full library to yourself. Why? I mean, I think it's very important to have several copies of the same book in a library. because people want to take it out you know know, exactly exactly i agree with you you. i'll
0: gazump you on that house josie i'm going to get that one not you i'm going to gazump i love it i'll come up and stay (laughs) <laughs> thank you so much for uh we will thank you very much everyone patreon and all of the different places we support us thank you so much Cardella, for coming with us uh on there we've gone in a lot of areas and there's a lot more we could have dealt with because it is it's a book which is is so dense in in ideas and beauty and and as i said at times strange this there's, there's so much it's definitely not magical realism that's definitely not what it is it's there's many other things that's the thing is you can't name it exactly it's exactly that you can't say it is like this book or that book it is there's so many things in that in that wonderful story so tall history of sugar is available now uh from canongate books and uh we oh the one thing we didn't ask you actually which we talked about your reading which has been very interesting talking to different people who've either found that the period of lockdown has been a very creative period or has been very difficult how have you found it in terms of your creativity
3: um, double. Um, it has given me more space in my head, definitely. But um, I have two young children, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, which complicates that a lot, you know, um, but I, I, it's, 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 a, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. And it has you certainly given me a lot more space in my head. And also for reading. I've done a lot more reading in this time than I've done Um, during semester when I uh, the only thing I can get to read most of the time is what I'm teaching about you know so 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 that's good but children are totally stir crazy Mm -hmm. and in fact after this I'm taking them out on the soccer field for a solo family picnic (laughs) so they can run up and down kick
2: the soccer ball and so uh, yeah a nice family
0: Have have a wonderful time to talk to you thank you thanks so much and uh and exactly as you said you're about to take your kids out josie passed her house you might have heard the ice cream van went past with its uh tune so hopefully it will go past all of our houses in all of our separate (laughs) places (laughs) where we are now thank you so much thanks everyone for listening Uh, bye-bye bye-bye bless you
3: thank you so much bye-bye
1: that was Curdella forbes her new book a tall history of sugar is available now and now this is our conversation with Claire McIntosh.
0: Our, our guest today uh, has, uh, its if well, in fact, we went to the same university, but I should say I went many years before her. Uh, she's not the same age as me. Uh, so and uh, went on an interesting journey from French and management into then the police force and then uh, a tremendously well-respected and very, very popular uh, crime author. And uh, her new book, which we'll get to as well, is um, dealing with something which is, very personal and and something that's very important to it to uh I think to have novels about soon but we will talk about that in a moment please welcome to our show Claire McIntosh hello Claire
2: hello thanks for having me so
0: in terms of being a writer sorry Josie I was
2: gonna say no no it's the same question I think so did you always have creative ambitions when you were growing up or is that something that you later on or how did that fit with you know other sort of styles of things to do
4: well I wrote always um uh, you know like like every writer i know has has always written in in some um way shape or form but i think it's really important when you are an impressionable teenager to have role models around you and i didn't know anybody who worked in the arts so i knew lots of people who had proper jobs they were doctors or lawyers or they worked in shops or they were teachers or nurses but I didn't know anyone who made a living doing um well a- anything in, in media who who wrote or painted or danced or anything like that. I actually wanted to be an actress for, for a very, very long time. Um a, a bit of me would still quite like to do that. And so I was always attracted to to the arts, but didn't see any realistic career path for me Um, and so I'm really passionate about this now when I speak to young people about making sure that they can see that the world really is their oyster Um, but at the time it just it it wasn't even I didn't even feel like it was cut off from me it just didn't occur to me that I could pursue it so I just chose subjects that I liked and you know sort of drifted into things Mm -hmm. but I wrote a lot in in the police i didn't write creatively but being a police officer is being a storyteller so you're you're finding you're finding the story when when someone has been the victim of a crime or they've just witnessed uh, a terrible crime or even committed one they don't tell you the story in a coherent way they don't start at the beginning and then give you a middle and an end they start at the end they start with what's happened And your job as the investigator, the the story finder, is to take them right back to the beginning or perhaps take them to 10 years ago when they first met this person that's now done this terrible thing and pull the narrative thread out of them, and sometimes they are unreliable narrators, either because they're uh, deliberately telling you a, um, a fabricated story, or because they are drunk, or they have mental health issues, or uh, you know a, a myriad reasons why they might not be telling you the truth. Um, and then you're doing the same thing with witnesses and the story that forensics has to tell, and the story that um, CCTV tells, all with a view to writing that story in such a compelling way that a court, a judge and jury or a magistrate can understand what happened and not just what happened, but why it happened and what the impact was. Well, that's exactly the same process that I go through when I write a novel.
0: So do you, uh, by the way, I'm fascinated by that that rebuilding the story with with very often, uh, as we're all unreliable narrators to some extent, greater or less extent, but that a friend of mine who's a legal aid lawyer, you know, and, and that bit is he pieces together. So your wife, she's been in the freezer now for six years. We're going to have to go back, of, you know, and he he deals with these kind of mm. and, and piecing together and people trying to return yep. to what their motive might have been that might be erased by that point. You know, there's, I mean, that, that to me is a, so when you write, do you have an awareness of, of the, because we've talked to quite a few crime writers and of course, you know, you, we talk to some crime writers who say that they suddenly find themselves 200 pages in and go, oh, it was you that did the murder. You know, and, and that journey they've gone with characters, they feel that you, they don't know at the start point. Do you have an end in sight then when you start writing a crime novel?
4: Yeah, I do. It often changes, but I, um, I, I, I yeah, I, I plan my novels so I know roughly the shape of them and the where the twists are likely to be. Whether it's likely to be a central twist or a twist in the tail or whatever. Um, uh, so I plan that out and I know what characters have done, but it often changes, and so. My the difference between a first draft and a second draft for me is is huge. They're they're almost different books. Wow, that's interesting.
0: Do, do, you, do you find yourself sometimes going, well, you were going to be the murderer, but I've really yeah. grown to like. You. I mean, is there a point where you <laughs> you find you, you've given uh, the way that you become attached to certain characters, you find perhaps monstrous moments of them more difficult to deal with?
4: No, no, not that because actually, I think monstrous characters that are also very likable are are probably the the most interesting to write. Whereas a a straightforward monster is just a monster. Um, I think what sometimes happens is uh, the character develops over the course of that first draft and takes on its own life so that actually when I get to a particular plot point, it just doesn't want to conform. It, it's not. I would either have to go back and change that character to make their backstory and their motivation fit, or I would need to change the, the plot point. Mm.
0: Right. I've yeah, got one. Sorry, Josie.
2: No, no. We, we were just talking the other day about this, the fact that the character sort of takes on their own life and then you can't get them back in the box. You can't sort of make them fit what you, what you initially thought.
4: Yeah, and well, I I think the thing is, is is I I've read lots of books where you get to a certain point and you think that's just not plausible, and generally it's not something that's happening in the story itself. It, it's to do with the fact that that character just wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like watching a horror film and and screaming at the television because why on earth would you go upstairs, you know, and investigate the the creepy noise when you know there's a, a an axe murderer running around your house. Uh, so you have to make it plausible and i think i think it's really important to to be character led um mm-hmm. and perhaps sometimes particularly in in procedural crime where the plot is so important the story itself is so important actually we we have to come back to character because if your reader feels that your characters are relatable and engaging and authentic then they'll follow them wherever they go mm-hmm.
0: Is is crime what you you read as well? Because I know again, like like every some some people working in specific genres, very rarely actually go near that. Whereas someone like Ian Rankin, I know you know, has enormous you know he's always I can ring him up and say watch in fact he recommended one of your books when I was uh, my wife is uh, I can have my Columbo moment my wife's a big fan and uh, this was something I wanted to ask you about a totally separate issue but can you tell publishers to stop giving all crime novels roughly the same cover because it's really problematic <laughs> whenever it comes to Christmas and I go to the big crime table and then I go I think I've bought that have I bought that I don't know which one so I would like to see the imagination within is great but the cover design it's getting really difficult if you're an idiot like me.
4: It's hard, isn't it? Every now and again, I see a Lisa Jewell book. Um, I forget what the the title is. It might be I Found You or something like that. And the cover is really similar to uh, my cover for I See You and every now and again i'll see it and i'll sort of do a double take because i think it's it's my book but it's it's not so yeah there there are lots of common themes aren't there through covers but it's driven by it's driven by market demand really
0: yeah i know well i'm i'm, I'm annoyed with that market and therefore i'm annoyed with human beings i've had a lovely time not seeing them for the last few months and i may well keep it that way for a while <laughs> the um
4: did you see so- what stones in swansea have uh, started putting their books round the other way. So rather than face out, they're back out so that what you see is the blurb, which makes perfect sense because then you can read the blurb without touching the book, picking picking it up so that there's a oh. reduced risk of infection. Um, and and I think it's brilliant, the idea that something as simple as as this could spark a complete rethink on the way we design covers. Because actually, you know, maybe... Maybe we would start having the blurb on the front of the book um, so that we can see it without picking it up. It's, it's I found it very interesting.
2: But it's hard, though, because I do love like when a cover is beautifully well designed. That is such a treat. That's such a joy to like get it and love the book and be like mm, an object that I want to keep. It's gorgeous, you know.
4: They are beautiful things, aren't they? In in their their own right. I think that's why everyone got so terribly cross when um, uh, the condo mania was everywhere, all about sparking joy and you know having keeping seven objects or whatever lunacy it was in your house, um, because most of us bibliophiles love. Books. I keep looking in front of me because I'm looking at my bookcases. Mm -hmm. We we like the look of books. It's not just about a book as an individual item or about the contents of that. It's the whole. It's the shelves. It's the quantity Mm -hmm. of them. It's the shape of them. The colours. The the design of of how we put them on our shelves. Everything about it.
0: We should talk about your. We mentioned at the beginning your 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 new novel and this is uh I hope it's fair to say this is a a a book which is from a very personal experience initially and and it is it is about the the loss of a child
4: really it's about how we uh move on from a crisis it's about how we make decisions and it's about what happens when we want different things um for the person in our life that, that we love. Um, it happens to be that, that the the situation that the characters are, are wrestling with in After the End is a critically ill son and uh, the, the couple, Max and Pip, want very different things. Um, and so when they're faced with a, a situation where a, a consultant is, is saying that you have to make a decision now, do we keep your son alive? And he lives with, Um, significant um, uh, disabilities or do you take him off intensive care and allow him to die Um, and it's interesting I think to to think about you know your your own situation and your own relationships because something very odd happens I think when you have a child which is that up until that point your partner is the number one person in your life and you would do anything for them you would lay down your life for them and then you have a child and you don't love that partner any less at least in an ideal world you don't um but actually the number one in your life is is the child and so when that decision has to be made about the person that you both love um it it becomes very difficult and the dynamic was one that i really wanted to explore in after the end And
0: um, was there a point where Talking to to various writers, sometimes who, when they've 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 had to deal with terrible things, there is a point where they try to write about it and they can't, and then there is a point of distance where they can find that turning something which may have some some attachment to personal experience. There, there is a time where the distance allows you to to create that story that you wanted. Was there was there a sense of battling with that over that period of time?
4: No, not not a battle. No, not at all. I never tried to write it. So my situation was, um, in 2006 when, uh, I spent some time in hospital with, with my son who was, um, was very, very unwell and had had a, a brain hemorrhage. And, um, after he died, I, I thought a lot about this book and I wanted, I wasn't a writer then, but nevertheless, it was a, a novel that I wanted to write. And I was very clear about the, the structure of, of this novel, uh, and so I, um, I had had a, a conversation with my father um, when when um, Alex was very ill, and uh, my father was a doctor and, and and very wise, and he said you need to um, y- you need to look down the the two paths that are being that you're being presented with and you need to think what that path looks like in a year or 5 years or 10 years but you need to do it you need to walk in his shoes not not yours that the decision that you're making isn't about you it's about him and it brought to mind the a poem that i've loved forever um robert frost's poem the road not taken and he talks about standing in a yellow wood and he looks down these two paths and says, would that I could be one traveller and travel both, which is this very natural reaction that we all want to do when we're faced with a difficult decision. And it doesn't have to be life or death. It can be whether you take a job or whether you leave a relationship or move to a new town. We want to know what's at the end of those paths so that we can choose which one to take. And I remember as a child reading the uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books, And keeping my fingers holding all the different Mm -hmm. paths open so that I could, if I chose the wrong one, uh, I could go back and take a different fork in the road. And it felt very much like that. And so when I thought about this book that I wanted to write, I wanted to take inspiration from that poem and from that that feeling of standing in yellow woods looking down the paths and wanting to be one traveller so i had I had the novel in my head for a really long time, but it's it's quite a structurally complicated novel. Um, and so it's not something that I think I could have written. I, I, I don't think I had the skills to write it back then. And then what happened was i um I met my editor in two thousand and thirteen, and she bought I Let You Go" and uh, a second as as yet unwritten novel. And she said, are you writing anything else? And, and I talked about this story. I told her what had happened to us. And I told her the story I wanted to write. And I said, but I know I can't. I know that's not what you want, because I know I Let You Go is a psychological thriller. And of course, I'll write another psychological thriller, because I knew how the market worked. And and so that was was that. And And over the years, I thought about this book. And I Wondered if perhaps I could write it kind of on the side, um, but I'm very all or nothing. I find it difficult to work on two two big projects at the same time. So I didn't write it. And then it wasn't until. Oh, 2018, I suppose, um, when my editor and I were talking about which book to write next as my fourth novel, having had three very successful crime novels, And I gave her some ideas and they weren't quite right. And she said, you know, I just can't get out of my head that story you told me all those years ago. I think you should write that. And it was a big, the start of a big decision about genre change and all sorts of of conversations internally about whether it was a good thing to do and what would readers think. Um, But the upshot was that that was the book that I wrote. And what that distance had given me was less about emotional distance, and more about the story itself. So the the title of, of the book is After the End. This is not a book about the tragedy, about the crisis. And I think if I had written it in 2006, or in the year or two after that, it would have been a very different book. It would have been a book about the crisis. And actually, what I'm exploring in the book is how do we move on from that? How do you come to terms with the decisions that you've made? How do you find a new normal, a new way to be happy? Well, I couldn't have known that for myself without the 10 or so intervening years that taught me that I could have more children, that I could be happy again, that I wouldn't wake up every day wishing that I hadn't and so, actually, for me to have written this book and and to give the reader the hope by the end of the novel that they deserve, I needed to experience that hope for myself.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think then as well, there's something to be said for the fact that you're creating beauty and that, you know, it's poetry that people, uh, that people can connect to emotionally. It's, you know, it's the lyricism of writing that people can sort of really take to heart and really um, use in difficult times, I think, like much more so. I mean, yes, a book of advice is going to give you advice, but it's not the same. It's not consolation. It's not kind of something to carry around with you.
4: No, absolutely. And actually, quite often what we're looking for when we turn to to books of any kind is confirmation that what we're feeling is valid. It's It's not how to make it stop because actually you can't make things stop um and when someone is feeling grief then they're feeling grief and and the answer is not to take that grief away it's Mm -hmm. to support them in feeling it and so when you read that a character is losing their temper because they're so grief stricken it is reassuring to know that you're not the only one that's you know just screamed your head off at uh, some hapless delivery person um, because like in all fiction we want relatable characters and that's no different if we're feeling sad.
0: It's interesting at the beginning you were when we were just talking about the, your, your career paths and we were talking about the idea of permission to write and the idea that if you don't have and it I feel to some extent that's also what novels can do as well which is someone can be given permission they read a story, and as you said, they might see something where they go but that that was me, and that was what I had my guilt about and that was what I felt was only me and that in the act of reading sometimes you can be given permission you can be given an acceptance of yourself as well
4: yeah, absolutely and and it gives you the opportunity to bring in smaller characters, sort of cameo roles that have have a um, have a role to play that that they uh, they illustrate an element of whatever it is you're trying to talk about that doesn't need to be it's not a point that needs to be hammered home you don't need to be um sort of spelling it out to readers you can just draw these pen pictures and i think it's 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 very helpful for
0: people mm. brilliant well thank you so much for joining us today uh after the end is available now thanks very
1: much claire thanks very I much everyone you. for listening. bye bye, bye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to Cordella and Claire. Both their books are available now. Don't forget to listen to an extended edition of both of those interviews uh, individually, about 45 minutes with each author. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash bookshambles to hear that and get lots of other goodies as well. Back next week with another new episode when we'll be talking to a returning favourite at Bookshambles, one of our favourite people. Richard Holloway. Until then, stay safe, take care, be sensible, and have a good week.
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.